Thank you everybody for, for having me here today. And uh, thank you for taking uh, time to, uh, to attend this as a sort of a, a virtual presentation uh, today. So uh, just a couple of, of acknowledgements. Um, a lot of the work that was done to inform this presentation was done uh, by a team of colleagues. So I just want to briefly make sure I, I thank uh, each of those individuals who's contributed greatly to the material that we're going to be presenting today. Um, and just to, to give you guys a little bit of an overview, um, I'm going to start off with some kind of key concepts, uh, you know, in, in that are in the recovery-oriented world. Um, and kind of, I, I'd love to explore if we all actually have a shared understanding of what they mean. Um, you know, do we have different interpretations of what those concepts mean and, you know, how they apply? Um, so in particular, it would be great for you guys to use the, the chat for that. Um, then I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the internal and external influences um, on how FSP programs operate, just to, to provide a little bit of, uh, of an overview on that. Um, then really do uh, a bit of a deep dive on this uh, whole issue of, of uh, client choice and, and self-determination. And, you know, what are some of the tensions there? What, you know, what does choice and self-determination look like uh, for different programs? How do they interpret it? Um, differently, and then you know, what are some of the practices that practices that do seem to be contributing to uh, what I call choice with a with a capital C? Um, and then I'll also just talk about some other aspects of recovery oriented practice and in other um, sort of just good team operations that that appear to facilitate a a strong recovery oriented team. So, you know, as I said, you know, first, my first question is, do we actually all know what these concepts mean? Do we have the same understanding? And so I'm curious, you know, when the word independence comes up, you know, from the, from the perspective of, you know, client independence, what, uh, what does that actually mean? Being able to make one's own decisions, absolutely. That's uh, that's a that's a very good interpretation. So, um, so something about you know the ability to to make decisions um, for oneself, absolutely. So a decision making process. To be able to do things on on one's own. So basically, this idea that um, you can do things for yourself, absolutely. Um, and I guess, you know, to be a free thinker, that's that, that's another great way of thinking about it, yeah. And I guess, you know, when we talk about being able to do things on one's own, um, you know, I guess my question is, do you guys think that uh, that means that you basically no longer need support? So is, you know, does this idea of being able to do things on one's own, but uh, no longer needing support? So I'm seeing some no's, okay. Yeah, and so you know, what does so what does being able to do things on one's own but also get support? What does that actually mean? And someone said again, being able to take care of uh, of oneself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So so you know, it, it's interesting. There's this idea of um, you know exactly how one uses the support that they you know that they have access to to be able to you know do things on one's own and to have that you know sense of uh, sense of self-autonomy, absolutely. So, you know, it, it sort of seems like there might be this, you know, contradiction of support and independence, but it, it's not, right? It's this very kind of nuanced relationship. Um, but critically, what's important to understand is that, you know, it, it's not always interpreted um, in that, you know, nuanced kind of way. So, you know, for example, 
one program that I've talked to, this uh, is an example of uh, housing and using flex funds. And so that, you know, they noted that, um, you know, when we asked about whether they use flex funds to subsidize rent, they indicated that that is actually fostering dependence on their program. Um, and, you know, in order for people to stay housed because they wouldn't be able to pay that rent on their own without the program's help. And so, and, you know, this particular program was kind of very focused on this idea of, you know, um, providing less financial support to clients and sort of providing less um, intensive services because of this idea that that is actually operating against, you know, this concept of independence and people being able to do things on their own, right? And so I just kind of want to present this as, you know, it's, it's important to have an understanding that, you know, typically when we're talking about recovery-oriented care, this particular version of independence is, is not what we mean, right? Where, you know, it just means that basically you don't need to rely on, on anybody else. You don't need, you know, to rely on anyone else for resources or support, right? So that's not what we're saying here. And then the next concept is, you know, what, uh, what does it mean to have, you know, client-driven goals? What are client-driven goals? And if anybody has like any, you know, so having a sense um, of, so of what the client would like to work on, absolutely. So what the client would like to work on, what the cl client is deciding is right for them. Yep. So right, goals the client wants to work towards, not not what the clinician wants. Yeah, absolutely. I, I to totally um, agree with that. And, you know, I think, again, the important thing to hear is to remember it's not always this uniform understanding that it's truly, you know, what the client wants and not what the clinician sort of thinks the client should actually be improving on, right? And so, you know, sometimes what, what you end up seeing is goals that kind of don't really sound like they, you know, were really necessarily spoken by a client. Um, and, you know, so something like, I want to be compliant with my medication and mentally stable so I can get a job is, you know, generally not uh, how we see when client goals are truly, you know, phrased in a client way, they're generally not phrased like this. And so it's kind of important to remember that, you know, for some programs, uh, putting the word I want, right, in front of the goal is, is not what we're talking about, right, when we're talking about, you know, client-driven goals. So yes, exactly. The client has developed their own goals. That is what we're talking about. Not that, you know, the provider is sort of rephrasing their version of what the client has said, right? Um, and then... Okay, and what does it mean? You know, you, you guys hear, hear this all the time. I'm sure many of you say it. Um, you know, this concept of we do whatever it takes. Um, what does that actually mean? And is this a, you know, is this a helpful phrase um, when we're talking about what is the purpose of FSPs? So there might be more of a delay on this one, which, you know, might make sense. Okay, so once, you know, one person says accessing and utilizing all resources for clients. So, you know, trying to get any resources possible to help support clients. Yep. So being creative and helping clients to reach their goals. Yeah, creativity is a key um, attribute of recovery-oriented programs. So I think this, you know, this idea of, you know, creativity with, with a capital C and, you know, the, the constant 
strategizing to you know help the the client to you know reach where they want to go that constant creativity the constant you know um, attempt to open up more roads for the client to walk down even when one ends up you know getting shut down um, I think that that reflects a lot of that spirit of what it actually means you know we, we do whatever it takes and then you know finally just you know again this idea of, of client choice, right? And you know, what does client choice actually mean? Um, and this one, you know, can often be one of the trickiest ones um, to to really operationalize and, and adhere to in in practice. Um, so you know, today it's really about this idea of you know trying to understand what is current practice at, at FSPs and what is this diversity and range that actually does exist among among FSPs, and you know is that the range that's intended or you know do we need to try and shift practice a little? Our services being delivered, how our staff roles actually understood and enacted, you know, how do you actually support individuals? Um, and, you know, we also are, are trying to figure out what is, you know, what's the, what's, what are effective ways to actually apply principles, right? So it's sort of really easy to say, you know, oh, we support clients in choice or, oh, you know, yes, we're a harm reduction program. Um, but it's very, very different um, how that actually is applied in practice on the ground by, by different programs. And so it's, I think it's really important to see, you know, what are different programs doing, um, despite the fact that they might equally be endorsing, you know, yes, we're client choice, yes, we're client driven, yes, we're harm reduction. Um, and then the idea is really to, to try and figure out, you know, how can we disseminate effective practices that, you know, are recovery oriented, that are supporting client choice with, a, you know, with that capital C. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I think it's always, always important to keep in mind, um, and you know, you all know this better than anyone else, that there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, factors that are influencing what any FSP program and service looks like on a, on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, you have sort of the, the whole like environmental and system level issues that are going to be, you know, really influencing, you know, the options that staff has and that clients have, you know, every moment of the day, right? Um, so that could be what are the local policies for how services are actually funded, right? So that's going to influence the types of services you can offer, how you can offer them, how often you can offer them. Um, you know, some, some key supports are going to be supporting individuals with housing. So what are local and national qualifications, you know, for various housing subsidies? What's the funding for that look like? what's the availability of housing in the local area. Um, the local culture of the area and sort of, you know, various other aspects of, of, you know, geography as well can influence what the program looks like and what the program's able to do. Um, clients' ability to access sort of social welfare benefits locally and other types of benefits, that is also going to impact things. Um, and finally, and this is this is really, really key. And again, you know, I'm sure that many of you know this all, all too unfortunately, is that you know the availability of other you know non-FSP types of community support services in an area also influences what the FSP program looks like. If you are in an extremely service-rich area where a client is in an FSP but can still access some other services on the side, you know, those linkages work really well, you know, the FSP might not have to provide as, as uh, diverse an array of supports and as intensive an array of supports, right? 
But if you are in an area where you know there's not those strong linkages, there's not those rich resources, the FSP program sort of has to make up for the deficiencies of that local community, right? So it's like you know the FSP has to step in and you know provide that full range of services because there really you know aren't those good linkages to re to refer people to. Um, and then you know so that's just some of those factors on that environment and system level. Um, and then you know a whole bunch of factors, of course, at the organizational level, sort of at the level of you know your individual agencies. Um, and, you know, this could be the organization's access to resources, so, you know, how much funding uh, the organization has, how much staffing, um, you know, even things like office space can influence, um, you know, what, what the FSP is going to look like. Um, there are some programs who are so limited on office space, office space, clients can basically never, you know, never come into the, uh, into the office because they share a space with, you know, a whole bunch of other programs. Um, there's also the issue of training and what types of training staff have received, and that will influence how uh, staff interprets, you know, these various concepts and practices and, you know, enacts them on a daily basis. And, you know, and finally, it's not often talked about, um, or it's not talked about enough, but, you know, whatever values that organization and staff have are also going to manifest on a daily basis in, in the client services. Um, and then finally, you know, at the heart of all this, we do have clients and, and client sort of needs as well. And, you know, hopefully they are playing a key role in, in what the FSP programs look like and what they can offer and how they're supporting folks. Um, but, you know, it, it's just important to remember all these other factors, you know, can either be in sync with, you know, client needs and sort of helping facilitate that, or they can sort of, you know, be blowing against, you know, client needs and working against that, which makes it really hard often to design an FSB program that is going to be responsive to client needs if there's all this, you know, uh, pushback. So um, the, I wanted to also say the, the information where, that I'm going to be presenting today, uh, I'm going to be using a lot of um, different quotes from, uh, from FSP program staff. Um, and so the, these quotes will come from, we did a study of 20 FSP programs throughout uh, the state of California, and we tried to get a diversity of programs, so, you know, by location and geography, but also by you know differing uh, philosophies and, and practices to kind of really get um, get like the full spectrum of uh, types of FSPs that exist out there. Um, at at every single program, we uh, attempted to interview their full range of you know disciplines or specialties and you know titles or positions. Um, so in, in essence, that meant that we we would in, interview multiple uh, MFTs. We would interview peer specialists. We would interview uh, supported employment or vocational specialists. We would interview psychiatrists, LPs, uh, and NPs. You know, so we would, and then of course leadership as as well. Um, so we really tried to understand the you know every person's perspective of the program. So the findings that I'm going to be talking about here are really rooted in you know over over 120 interviews um, from all these programs together. Okay, so going uh, into the you know the client choice self-determination and client-driven services part of things, um, you know as as I sort of have started to refer to this, there's this concept that I call you know this concept of you know choice with a small c. So one program, uh, this is what we heard the the provider say. There are things that we think the client you really should take this. You really should just really this is an excellent opportunity, and the client will say no. The client has the final say. The clients have the final say in everything. Um, 
Now, I'm just curious if anyone has any thoughts on why this, this sort of phrasing of the client has the final say might come across as a little bit challenging or why I'm calling it choice with a, with a small c. It seems a little pushy. <laughs> right, so potentially this, this idea of presenting something in a way that makes it sound like it is absolutely the right choice, right? It make, and it's right, it makes it sound like the clinician is deciding and the, the client is agreeing or not agreeing. Exactly, and that, that's exactly right. Um, this idea that, you know, the clinician sort of made a certain decision, uh, given the client, you know, this one option, and the client just can default to agree with that or, or not. And the client is not an act, sort of like, you know, very active participant in this process of saying, you know, well, what, what are my choices? What's, you know, what are my other choices? Um, and really, you know, uh, being a part of the actual decision-making process and contributing to that, right? And the provider is only, you know, waiting until that last moment to say, okay, yes or no, do you want to do this? Um, similarly, you know, the, the wording of this other provider was, you know, we still allow them to choose. Knowing that this is the wrong choice for you at this particular time in your life, we still let them make the choice. Um, so, you know, this is just a, a, another type of example where, you know, it's this language of allowing people to choose, um, as opposed to this idea that, you know, they have autonomy, they, you know, they have self-determination, supporting, you know, supporting that is, is a goal, you know, it's this, instead it's this idea of allowing someone to do something. Um, and then similarly, you know, just being convinced that it is, you know, the wrong choice for that person, but still, you know, still letting them make that choice. So those can often be, you know, problematic um, ways of thinking about choice. And, and absolutely there, you know, um, someone brought up this issue of, of liability and there absolutely can be program liability if, it, if a client is making self-destructive decisions. Um, you know, absolutely. And that, you know, that sort of, um, the degree to which that liability is constantly weighing down on providers, you know, I think can actually push things in the direction of, you know, often limiting choice much more so than, you know, than perhaps, you know, people normally would if there wasn't this idea of huge, you know, liability looming over their heads, right? So I absolutely agree. Liability is, in, is a complete, you know, factor here. And that's why sometimes, you know, when you factor in you know, the liability aspect, you get choice with, with a little c. And then, you know, alternatively, the other ways in which you hear some programs talk is, you know, another provider who said, if the client isn't given choices and isn't involved in the collaborative process and feels like his self-determination abilities or autonomies of being respected, it makes it harder for them to trust me and to engage in treatment. So, you know, they're basically saying that, you, you know, engaging someone in the process of making decisions and evaluating their decisions, making them aware of the possibilities for their life is actually how, you know, how they frame this concept of, you know, what, what I'm calling choice with the, the big C, right? So this idea of presenting the person with multiple options, making them kind of a partner in that whole, you know, decision-making process and figuring out what those options are and weighing those options um, and having that, you know, autonomy from the beginning, you know, not after a decision has sort of already been made, right? So, um, you know, lots of programs that are, are, you know, seem to be really good at facilitating um, like a very strong recovery oriented concept of client cho choice do present clients with these multiple options, 
um, you know, encourage the autonomy and self-determination versus sort of just, you know, allowing choice um, and support and engage clients, you know, throughout that decision-making process. Um, you know, certainly this is not an easy thing to do always, you know, for, for many, many reasons. Um, you know, as we said before, you know, lots of times, you know, we're all going to be convinced at some point someone is making, you know, the wrong choice. And, you know, the question is, you know, is always there, okay, at that point, like, do you still have that happen, you know, or do you really have to step in as a provider and completely do like a, a course correction, depending on, you know, the, you know, the, the, the potential um, outcome. But nevertheless, you know, it is possible in most scenarios to try and think of choice in this way. Again, it's not this idea that, you know, in every single scenario, this is, this is going to be the mentality, but that the program, you know, from the start as an overarching, you know, um, kind of mission has this as their goal, that this is something they would, um, they would try and move towards. Um, and just another um, sort of example of, of different ways of interpreting choice, um, uh, two programs both said a lot of their work, especially on the front end, is about uh, housing and, you know, choice in housing. Um, and so, you know, at one program, the, the person said participants can choose that housing that they want, regardless of whether they're actively using. So they were sort of embracing um, a, a very, uh, very strong harm reduction type of principle where they were saying, okay, even if a person is using, they still can choose where they want to live and we'll, you know, try and place them um, somewhere if we find, you know, that a placement that matches that. And then, you know, another program interpreted this idea of housing and choice as participants can choose to be clean and sober and, you know, they'll get an apartment or they can choose to continue using and, you know, they'll, they'll receive housing in a, um, in a room and board, right? So again, the very, you know, despite the fact that both programs were talking sort of the same conceptual language about housing and choice, very different uh, ways in how they actually interpreted that on, on the ground. Um, so that has, you know, very, very practical consequences. Um, and so, you know, in, in reality, there is sort of this, you know, this full spectrum of, um, of how programs are, are interpreting and applying um, client choice. And so, you know, another interesting concept here is, um, I've titled this slide, who needs to look at it from whose perspective? Um, and, you know, the title is a little bit confusing and it's sort of meant to, to be maybe a little bit, but, you know, it, it's this idea that, you know, you know per, we all perhaps need to shift our perspective to some degree, right? If we're going to, you know, collaborate in a decision-making process. Um, but it's sort of interesting the way that some programs in, interpret that shift. So in, in one program um, that, you know, the, the, the program staff member said, what we're really saying is how do I, as a staff member, see something from the client's perspective to get their buy-in and reframe it? That's all it is, is reframing it in a way that's digestible and palatable for the client. So yes, it's manipulation, but we believe that we're doing it with the best of intentions. So here the idea is that basically, you know, staff want to understand how their, you know, how their decision that they've already made is going to come across to the client. And so, you know, they talk about it as just understanding the client's perspective so that they can present it in such a way that actually is going to sound, you know, in somehow appealing or as a, you know, as an okay option for the client. Um, and again, that's generally not the way in which we, we sort of interpret this idea of, you know, understanding the client's perspective and getting their you know, getting their buy-in. Um, and, you know, the program acknowledges that that it's manipulation. And I, you know, I give them uh, absolute credit for, 
even, you know, stating that because, you know, I think lots of programs wouldn't even, you know, perhaps make that acknowledgement that there is this um, idea of, uh, of manipulation sort of creeping into this, um, but that because it's done with the best of intentions that that makes it okay. And I think, you know, it's important to kind of, you know, step back and say, okay, you know, is this what we mean? when we're talking about, you know, helping people shift perspective, develop different outlooks um, and offer choice. You know, al alternatively, um, a staff member from a different FSP program sort of said the exact opposite, right? So what they said was, I spent a lot of time helping staff look at the perspective of the client and then helping staff move that way instead of what we think is best for them. Um, so again, you know, two very different ways of, of thinking about, you know, who's looking at whose perspective and, you know, what is the, the point of that, that shift in perspective, right? Um, and, you know, and the, I think the reason why some of this is, is so important is, um, is because there's, you know, there's really practical implications of this that, that, that matter uh, greatly, you know, for on, on a service level, you know, every day. Um, and so I had two staff members mention the exact same scenario uh, to me in an interview. Um, and the scenario was that uh, a client was being incentivized to move because their, their building was actually being sold. And so they were, they were being offered uh, several thousands of dollars to actually move voluntarily in advance of, of the building sale. And, and so, you know, there was this issue of the client, you know, didn't, didn't want to move and didn't want to take the money. Um, and so one of the providers said the client didn't want to move when we asked why they said because I don't want to move they you know we, we kept following up and the provider just said you know because I don't want to move I don't know what the issue is I think there's some paranoia right so sort of defaulting to like the mental health symptoms of things and you know it was clear that this person could not understand you know how you know, someone who, who is living in poverty would refuse, you know, several thousand dollars worth of money to just, you know, go somewhere else and, and you know, and, and move somewhere else that that was the better deal, right? And then sort of were, you know, admitted they, they didn't really understand why they, you know, what the issue was. And then, it, like I said, defaulted to it as like a symptom of mental health. When we talked to another provider, you know, that provider sort of said, you know, a similar thing, but, you know, with a twist, right? So this provider said, We've been trying to convince him to move to another place where he'll pay less room, less rent. He wants to fight it. He doesn't want to move because he's been there so long already. He feels he'll be lost if he left there. And so, you know, this idea of, you know, the first person completely, you know, not really being at all in tune to what the client's perspective might be on this versus the second person, you know, who is stating, you know, the client will be, you will feel lost if he left there. Um, and so, you know, that leads to a much greater appreciation of what the client's dilemma is, you know, and why the client might be reluctant to move even in the face of, you know, some thousands of dollars, right? You know, if the client feels that they'll be completely lost, that is a huge, huge hit um, to themselves, which could lead, you know, to a whole bunch of other, you know, negative consequences. And so, you know, there's this idea that, um, and, and this, you know, and having that information, um, would also probably shift how they're going to support the client, right? In the first scenario, you know, the person would probably try and address, you know, their mental health issues and potential paranoia about moving. In the second scenario, it's actually validating that client's feeling of, you know, the sense of, of potential, you know, being lost and actually addressing that in, you know, trying to figure out what is, what is a good way to resolve the situation where, you know, move ultimately has to happen. 
Um, so, you know, the important thing here to remember is really just this idea, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be acceptance of an alternative perspective, but just the idea of, you know, openness to an alternative perspective that, you know, you could actually see why in, you know, in some scenario, it, you know, it could be a rational decision to, to not want to move, right? And then, you know, that understanding um, can change the type of support that, that is actually offered, right? If you understand where the client is coming from, how you support them is, is going to look uh, very different. And so I, I've kind of, you know, alluded to this a, a couple of times, but um, there's, you know, part of the thing that's key for all of this to happen is that uh, lots of programs that are more recovery oriented are able to, to engage in this kind of bracketing or temporarily suspending their beliefs or values or, or biases, you know, e even if only for a moment. Um, and so one, one program said, you know, the biggest challenge for us is remembering, okay, what is our goal? What is their goal? We try to always remind ourselves they have the right to fail and there's growth and learning in that too. Um, and these, you know, these are not easy things, uh, things to do for, you know, as a provider for, for many, many reasons. Um, but this idea that, you know, just acknowledging that, the, you know, the provider is coming from one perspective and the client might be coming from another perspective and trying to just table that for a moment to, you know, to see that other side and, you know, how there could be growth and learning from the client choosing, you know, the path that they choose um, eventually, you know, could, could be important as well. Um, so just to, you know, to kind of like sum up some of the things that, that um, I've, I've talked about, um, this idea of reflecting on you know, one's own current practice was shown to be very important among uh, FS pre programs that, that were sort of that had a high recovery orientation. So in sort of like low recovery FSP programs, there was really almost no talk about you know, the program perspective and the client perspective perspective and not much reflection really that there's sort of you know a decision um, other than what whatever the program thinks is kind of best for for the clients so, and no reflection on whether you know what the program actually thinks is best for the client you know is truly you know absolutely 100% best for the client um, and sort of medium recovery oriented programs providers would you know sometimes reflect on their practice and sometimes acknowledge the client perspective but then often they would just, you know, they kind of would move forward anyway with whatever had, had been planned. Um, and then in the high recovery oriented practice, there was this consistent acknowledgement of the client perspective. And then there was this consistent kind of reflection on their own practice. Um, and as I kind of, you know, uh, show at the bottom of this slide, um, you know, the team would always debate with one another um, different positions, right? So it's not like the team was always in agreement as to the best move, move. Um, the team themselves would kind of engage in this dialogue about what actually, you know, should we be doing here? Um, what, you know, are we doing the right thing? What is the right thing? You know, what is the client's perspective? Um, so these teams engaged just in a lot of talk during their own meetings and informally um, regarding, you know, these reflections on, on their current practice. Um, similarly, you know, in, in low-oriented programs, um, they were sort of very clinically centered, um, and so they were, you know, they were in, in essence making decisions for clients, and often the decisions that were being made for clients were, you know, being very driven just by, you know, their assessment of, of the client's clinical profile. Um, in what we call medium uh, recovery-oriented programs, we refer to it as sort of like a client-centered decision-making. So, you know, the, the staff are taking into account many different needs, you know, that the client may have, 
and you know many different strengths that the client may have, and sort of then you know doing their own kind of factoring in of those strengths and and, and needs um, and you know needs for for support, and sort of making a client-centered decision as to what you know what they should do with the client and what might be best for the client. And then finally, in you know, in the client-driven types of decision-making programs, it, it was much more truly collaborative, right? So this idea that you know the, the client is is with you from the start, and you know you're driving together on this path and figuring out you know where you're both going together, um, you know, in terms of what support the client needs, what support the program can provide. Um, so these different kind of ways of engaging in decision-making is is very very important. Um, I also wanted to, you know, to, to go back to this idea of, you know, the staff values and, you know, where where staff are coming from, um, and then the the other uh, sort of dichotomy that we often heard about was was this idea of um, programs that operated along the lines of viewing uh, different resources that clients, you know, could have access to based on sort of this idea of privileges and functioning versus. Um, in a language uh, that focused on uh, this idea of client rights and, and client choice, and so what you know what you sometimes hear is statements such as "we don't want to work harder than our clients," and so it is a privilege, or the people that are stable in apartments have worked to get there, and this is an opportunity that you can have as well. But you need to show us that you're capable and ready for the for that next step. Um, and I, I, I neglected to put a, a quote here for rights, but then you know other other programs really talked about it more about, you know, the need to actually, you know, provide permanent housing to people and the need to, you know, that that this idea of placing people in housing that they actually do not want, that that is actually a version of setting people up to fail. If the client does not want the housing, but they're still placed in it, that that is actually setting individuals up, up to fail and that staff will end up working harder um, to make, you know, this, this mismatch work when it, it might not work. So, you know, this idea of our, our clients, um, you know, are they earning these privileges of various services and supports from the team or, you know, are there certain things more reliant on uh, like a you know, rights-based approach? Um, and again, in, you know, in, in these uh, low choice and low self-determination uh, kinds of programs, there is this little talk about participant choice, um, or you know, there's active talk about subverting participant choice, right? This whole idea of m manipulating clients into seeing things your way so that they will agree with you, right? That's you know, it's really actively subverting client choice. In these medium programs, um, there is this acknowledgement of, of, of client choice, but as we kind of talked a bit about before, it's it's seen as this type of negative choice, right? Where clients can choose to not participate in the services, or they can choose to you know engage in a in a different behavior, um, and that's kind of primarily how that choice is is seen. Um, similarly, as we said, you know, allowing this idea of choice as a final say, not as this like full collaborative process that supports self autonomy in client decision making. Um, and just, you know, to, to again, oops, sorry, um, to talk about how, you know, this idea of positive choice and actually creating opportunities. And, you know, this, this can be very challenging, you know, as, as a provider um, to actually work on, you know, expanding the range of possibilities for people. Um, and the example that, that we heard of here was this idea of, um, you know, people being dissatisfied with housing. And I don't know how the program did it, but, you know, they did manage to do it. And it said, you know, the person said, we wanted to give them choices about the areas that they live in. But we, you know, we so we developed another apartment program because clients said, okay, we want more choice. I want more choice. 
And so this idea, you know, saying that, okay, you know, how can we, as we talked about before, creatively think about strategizing in, you know, in these problematic environments, right, where, you know, resources are constrained, where housing is constrained, you know, how can we actually think creatively um, to provide people with, with more choices and not just, you know, default them to, you know, yay or nay, um, the one existing choice that, that we think we can, we can give them at this time. Um, another key factor um, was this idea of almost staff uh, managing their own expectations. Um, and, you know, that really kind of also influenced um, how they approached clients. So this whole philosophy of what, you know, what are the expectations actually had, had a very important impact on the types of services that were actually provided on, on the ground. So the first person said, you know, what you can expect, they're going to comply with some of the things they need to do. They need to come and see a caseworker once a week. They need to do some productive looking for other housing. And they got to uh, get, seek help for their dilemma, their problem. Is this a medical, if this is an alcohol problem or if a mental problem, they've got to seek help for their problem, right? So it's, it's basically saying that, you know, to be a part of this program, you're going to have to comply with this, 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 and this, right? You know, the level of engagement um, that was sort of, you know, ex expected off the bat um, can be potentially challenging for, for a lot of clients to, to meet, right? And so there wasn't this idea of, of really, okay, you know, we'll work with people where they're at, but this idea that, you know, people need to get to where we're at, you know, and, and you know, meet all of these milestones so that we, you know, we can support them in the way that, you know, that we want to support them because they now have earned um, the right to be in this program. They've earned the privilege of, of the support services that we can offer. The, you know, the flip side of that is, um, is a different program where a staff member said, you know, just showing up for your appointments, not necessarily making any major changes, that could be a milestone for clients. Because a lot of times you have to understand that our clients, they don't want treatment, they don't want to be in treatment, often they don't even want to see me. So it's just being willing to come back and see me. So, you know, this idea of um, trying to avoid setting up all these, you know, things that uh, clients have to just like automatically comply with, but sort of, you know, lower the bar and say, okay, um, you know, if they're willing to, you know, to come back and see me again tomorrow, if they're willing to talk to me tomorrow, it, you know, it's been a successful day, it's been a successful client interaction. So, you know, not having the onus be on the client, you know, meeting all of these other criteria, um, you know, to, to sort of like earn different levels and, and intensities of, um, of services. So, you know, really just seeing that for a lot of people, even just, you know, maintaining engagement is actually a success and a milestone. And then, you know, once that engagement is pretty stable, then also, you know, of course, trying to, trying to address other issues as well. Um, Another important point here um, is, uh, and this is again, just a very interesting contrast between two programs who are saying similar things, but again, kind of mean it very differently. Um, the top program said, the main goal is to come to this clinic, accept your medication, take your medication, and then you're free to go back into your community. But we have to put up a mirage first though. It has to be something that they want that we can get them to come in and accept. So we have to dress it real, real nice, you know, real glittery, sparkly, sparkly, sparkly. We've got to do that. And at the same time, here's your meds, but you've got to take them right here. Oh, no, 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 there ain't no walking away. So this, this idea that, you know, all of the, you know, things that the client might want, 
they're really putting up just as a front, right? To get the client through the door and you know have the client accept the services that the program feels that they they want to you know that the client really needs, right? So in this program, there's a very big focus on ensuring people were you know medication adherent in a very high level, and so they basically just tried to again this person says you know they just tried to dress the medication service in a way that would actually be palatable to, to clients by offering these sort of, you know, other types of things on the side that, you know, clients may want. Um, this person used the word, you know, we entertain them at the clinic um, to get them to come in and take their medications. So, you know, the what they're actually doing is not really because they know, you know, that the service they're now providing is, is you know, what the client wants. It's really all about just, you know, getting them through the door so they can give them this other thing, right? In the second program, again, saying something similar, but very different. Um, so this person says, my kind of responsibility is making it worth their while to come see me. Who wants to come see some strict taskmaster, like you need to do this and this and this, that's not going to make it valuable for them. So you know, they too are sort of saying, look, we have to tailor um, our services to what clients want, but there's this idea that it's it's really much more of you know this genuine, you know, we have to actually offer a service that clients want in order to get them to engage with us and to continue working with us. And so for those providers that, that, are, um, that had a higher recovery orientation, they sort of had this belief much more so that the onus was on them to provide support in, in a way that was seen as both you know, being genuine and valuable from the client's perspective. That you know, it wasn't just this like sideshow to convince clients to, to do what they really wanted them to do. And so again, you know, something that you guys probably uh, know very, very well, this, this idea of other things that can kind of, you know, uh, push services in a certain way and constrain delivery of services, you know, funding mandates. Um, and so often people do talk about how there's still, you know, a funding push towards more medical services and, and less choice, right? And so that kind of constrains things. Um, and so this individual says, there's the issue of there are certain things Medicaid will pay for more medicalized services. So that's a competing set of mandates. Um, we want to ask a client, what do you want? And the client may, may say, I don't need any psych meds and I don't need any social work. Um, I just need to get a job somewhere. And you know, the, the program is saying we may or may not agree with that, you know, but the system, there's a push to have us go a certain way. Um, and so it's, you know, it's always just again important, um, you know, as a potentially high recovery-oriented team to just recognize those constraints and recognize that push and to figure out creative ways of, you know, how to push back around that. Um, you know, some, some programs, uh, for example, when, when they write their, their progress notes, they're extraordinarily clinical, extraordinarily, you know, medication-oriented and symptom-oriented. And then other programs have kind of figured out a way in which to, you know, to have everyday other sorts of types of interventions and support and activities, you know, be tied into person's health but you know, not it not being, uh, you know, it not having it not sound like every other visit was basically to discuss, you know, medication and, and, and symptoms and, and those types of aspects of people's lives. Um, there also was a was a very kind of uh, broad diversity of how um, programs framed what is actually the goal of of their program, and you know, to some degree, both of these are are, are kind of like absolutely true. But programs that had a kind of lower recovery orientation, they talked about, you know, our main goal is really to keep them from going to jail and from getting back in the hospital. 
it was very focused on this idea of you know stabilizing, stabilizing and keep them out of the system and keep them you know keep the costs sound that they're going to be using. So it was very much that type of of a framing for what's the ultimate goal of the program. For programs that had a high in recovery orientation, it was much so you know people are people. We're here to help them in their quality of life and be what they want to be. Much more focused on this idea of you know we're here to support people's you know individualized paths to recovery. We're here to make people's lives you know just a little bit better in any way we can. Um, and so you know it, it becomes challenging, right? Partly because of you know for example the funding mandates that we talked about, as well as oftentimes right there's external pressure from the system you know to saying okay stabilize clients, make, make sure you're you know lowering costs um, and having them not utilizing these costly services. Um, and you know that that can be a very big pressure, um, but you know somehow the high recovery oriented programs figured out how to say you know yes okay we understand that that's a goal but they still at the forefront managed to keep this idea of we're here to improve people's quality of life to support you know their individualized paths paths to recovery that was always the overarching goal and and not you know sort of limiting it to okay it's really just to keep people from from you know going back to the hospital. Um, and so, you know, just to, again, this, this reminder that even if people say it's all about client-driven services, a lot of things are going into, into that. Um, so, you know, there is what the funder and reimbursement mandates exist. There's what the program model is and, you know, what the staff values are and what the organization is supporting, you know, and there's what, you know, the client words actually are. Um, and again, that's why it's just, you know, super important um, and recently, We've we've done a whole bunch of, of chart reviews, and you know very much you still see things worded as if clients said them, um, but you know it's pretty obvious that you know clients did not say those things in that way. Um, and so again, it, it's programs that are able to figure out how can we actually phrase you know goals and objectives in ways that clients actually say. Um, you know how can you know they've figured out how to do that and how to adhere to that and provide services around that. Those programs are again much more successful with their with their recovery orientation. Um, and then, you know, I think also an important aspect uh, of this not to be taken for granted is um, this idea of operating a you know a team in an FSP program as a team. Um, and there is a lot of um, there's again this like spectrum of the degree to which you know, FSP programs op operate. And again, I'll sort of use the distinction between you know, T, a T uh, capital team or you know, a lowercase t team. Um, and so you know, in, in, a, in the like, full FSP team, there's really this mentality of you know, everybody is responsible for everybody. And that means not only that you know, uh, all, all staff members are sort of familiar with all clients, and that all staff members are responsible, you know, for all clients. And then, but also that, you know, staff are actually resp all responsible for each other. Um, so, you know, that that shared sense of like mutual support um, and responsibility extended both to clients as well as amongst themselves. And, you know, so that that type fostering that type of an environment was was very very important because you could very clearly see um, in you know in how programs interact, whether that actually exists or not. Um, you know, the degree to which they, you know, the, the team engages as a team in, you know, this collaborative problem solving, um, that they too have a dynamic where there is this, you know, shared decision making 
within the team, that it's okay to, you know, to question perspectives, that it's okay to question what the team is doing, that that's actually part of a positive process. You know, if you're going to be a highly, uh, highly recovery-oriented team, that these things actually have to be encouraged, um, especially by leadership. Um, there's also, you know, communication can, can always be a challenge when, when you're working uh, as part of a team. So, you know, figuring out ways to actually build in both, you know, formal and informal mechanisms to communicate um, so the teams can update each other on, you know, what are pressing client issues, how can, you know, everyone stay informed to the degree that they can if they need to cover for each other. So, you know, figuring out various ways, especially when you have multiple disciplines, you know, can, can be very challenging. And then, you know, also this, uh, this idea of team meetings um, and really understanding, you know, how, how productive and important team meetings can be, um, both, you know, for providing, again, support to each other, as well as brainstorming, you know, how to address different types of client situations. Um, and, you know, again, modeling that dynamic of, you know, how can we all actually have some sense of autonomy and self-determination in staff roles, um, but, you know, but also have, you know, a sense of collaboration um, and moving together, you know, as, as one kind of service approach. Um, and this can also get particularly tricky there, you know, there's some teams that, that you visit. Um, and even though um, there's about like 10 staff members that are, you know, maybe even 100% dedicated to that program, not all of them actually attend uh, the team meetings. And, you know, that can be very challenging because, you know, oftentimes the, the, the team members that are there are like, well, you know, this person isn't here, it's, I, I, and I have no idea why they don't come to the team meetings. Um, and it becomes harder to, you know, to keep them in the loop on certain things. And even for team members that might be assigned, you know, to only uh, be on a team part-time, it's just always very, very helpful to at least say, okay, you know, even if you're going to come to the team meeting once a month, um, at least come to the team meeting once a month. And it really reinforces this idea that, you know, even if you're the, the, you know, the part-time supported employment specialist, even if you're the part-time housing specialist for our team, you know, showing up at these meetings once, you know, once a month or however, you know, with whatever frequency um, can really actually help, you know, okay, everybody's on the same page. Everybody's still kind of familiar with what the issues are with, with any clients. Um, and it really creates a, a, a very different type of dynamic um, that is, is very different from when, you know, certain members of the team are just, you know, not, not at various uh, types of meetings. So, um, you know, I, I think, and one of the final points that, that I'll be making is, is, is also, again, there's also this, you know, harm reduction is another important um, concept. Um, but again, it is, it is not uh, in, interpreted uniformly um, by programs. And, you know, harm reduction at one program looks completely different from harm reduction at, at another program. Um, and so, at, you know, at some programs, what you, what you hear is this first quote, just, you know, we try not to give up on them and show them that, you know, when they're ready, that, you know, we're here to help as much as we can. Um, and so, Often what these, what these programs do is, you know, it's this idea that, well, if people are using it's okay, we'll sort of be here on the sidelines. And then, you know, when they're ready to actually, you know, enter treatment or take steps towards abstinence, you know, then we'll kick in the support to do that. So there's this almost idea that, you know, um, the, the harm reduction approach there is this waiting for a readiness um, for the client to develop, you know, this, this uh, desire for, for abstinence or to go into treatment. Um, and then often at the same time, there's often just a reliance still on referrals to mainstream substance use treatment if the client is willing to accept. 
So what you see is sort of less brainstorming on the part of the team of, you know, in what are some harm reduction ways in which they can support the client. And again, more of this idea that, you know, there's this, okay, you know, we're stepping back a bit because, you know, the person is, is using and they're not ready to stop. Um, and, you know, when they are, then it becomes much more of, a, okay, so now we'll, you know, now we'll refer you to, you know, a, a rehab place or, you know, now we'll take you to take you to detox. Um, so again, you know, their interpretation of harm reduction is this sort of like a, like a wait and see and then engage in, in a more traditional form of treatment. Um, and what other programs do in, in their interpretation of harm reduction is, is, is a bit different. And so this person says, um, when I do a little digging, the clients often don't actually have any kind of harm reduction tools or strategies. So it's really implementing what it means to implement harm reduction strategies to reduce the harm. And that's where the rubber meets the road. For one person, he was a polysubstance user, so he drinks and does other illicit substances. And it was really looking at what's the most problematic for him, and the most problematic for him was the drinking. The drinking leads to a lot of frenzied encounters and a lot of hospitalizations. Um, so we're going to talk about other drugs with him, but that's actually what we're going to focus on is the drinking and what are the ways in which we can minimize the problems of drinking. And, and so there you see it's sort of like a very different orientation. So it's still trying to accept, yes, that, you know, the person is using and they're not, you know, they're not interested in, in going towards abstinence, but, you know, what types of changes can we support them to actually make where the drinking will be less, less harmful to them? Um, and, you know, that's where programs, again, you know, develop these creative strategies. Um, one program talked about how another client also had problems with excessive drinking, and that was causing problems with, you know, attending various appointments. So they tried to work out a system with him where, you know, okay, you know, you can go to the appointments and then try drinking afterwards. So try drinking only after a certain time when your appointments are, are, are done. So it wasn't necessarily change the amount that you're drinking, but, you know, at least change the timing of when it happens so that you can still get to appointments and still get the support and resources that you're getting from those. So it was this really uh, sort of this, this constant trying to tailor um, the individual harm reduction strategies to the client um, versus kind of just this, this idea of harm reduction as this stepping back, really. Um, so, you know, in essence, these, these teams really were about supporting clients to identify problematic use and, and develop strategies to, to reduce um, the harm. So, you know, just in kind of in closing, I, you know, I, I struggle as well with sort of, you know, what, what does client choice actually look like and what is the right balance? And again, there's no right balance in, in every single scenario for every single client. It's not, you know, that's not the way this works. It's not, it's not about saying, okay, how do we apply, you know, client choice in, in every single scenario, you know, to its extreme. Um, you know, where it's like, okay, we're just doing what exactly what the client wants and, and nothing else, right? Because that's not what we're talking about either. Um, so, you know, sometimes I just sort of think of it in, in this particular way where it's not about, you know, being overly restrictive and in kind of really limiting people's choices and really limiting um, them from being able to take any risks. Um, because, you know, unfortunately, um, most of life involves risks, particularly when people are changing and, and growing and learning. There is often risk associated with that. Um, so, you know, the idea is that it's not to completely hold people back from any of those risks and just sort of, you know, keep them forever where, you know, meeting them where they're at and then keeping them there. Um, but, at, you know, at the same time, it's, it's also not about this idea of completely stepping back and saying, okay, well, you know, the client's choosing to do this. So, you know, we're going to let them go ahead and do whatever they want. And, you know, we're, we're just kind of here, should they choose to, to come back into the fold with us and, 
and you know make make different kinds of choices. So it's also kind of not leaving people completely in the lurch to you know to just kind of do literally you know whatever they want without any other types of you know factors being being considered and having them really then be completely you know all risk all the time. Um, so you know it's 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 this sort of idea of you know in some way trying to figure out you know in every in you know everyday interactions you know finding some sort of way to balance you know clients initiative and ability to take risk while also you know having providers um, you know be there you know supporting clients in some way um, you know helping helping them guide those decision making processes you know and, and as well as you know being there if things go well and if things you know don't go well um, because you know sadly that that is the that is the reality so you know these aren't the best graphics but they they sort of kind of put in pictorial form what sometimes I imagine to be to be that you know to be that balancing act, um, and so you know again finally I think you know just to, to reiterate it you know it, it is not about every single scenario will be decided in the same way and client choice you know dictates dictates all the time with team you know the teams taking a back seat. It's this idea of you know make you know embracing it as an overarching principle as an overall team guiding principle. Um, and then, you know, applying it in, you know, in, in daily decisions with clients as, you know, as best as possible, balancing those ideas of risk, liability, responsibility, you know, choice and, and self-determination. Um, so that is it. If, um, if we want to open it up to um, some questions or, or comments, um, I think that would be, that would be great. I've done a lot of talking, so um you know if i could hear back from you guys that that would be fantastic hey uh thanks for the presentation that was great um i'm kind of interested in this topic of you know with client choice comes sometimes uh working with clients and and kind of promoting things i mean i'm a big proponent of harm reduction but sometimes you have to promote things that maybe not all the staff on the team not promote but you know kind of support the client in decisions that maybe go against the values and, and ethics of, you know, uh, of different staff and things like that. So I wondered how people kind of address those challenges. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, because th this isn't all at the, uh, at the program level. You, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not like necessarily uh, there's, there's like really completely such a thing as, oh, a high recovery oriented program and a low one, but there's also staff members, right? With their own individual um, values and perspectives. And, and many times, you know, they're, they're all, uh, they all need to be acknowledged and, and validated. So, you know, I, and, and I apologize if this seems like a cop out, but, you know, I think that just, you know, making sure that the leadership that's there, um, you know, just creates that space where those conversations can actually happen. Um, and, you know, where, you know, someone who does believe in harm reduction is allowed to say harm reduction and why they think that, you know, it, it might be um, appropriate to support a client in a certain way, and where you know someone on the other hand is is allowed to express what their concerns are, right? I think you know creating that constant space where the team can you know can just hear each other out. Um, it really you know kind of models the type of space that you want to create with clients, right? Like you know you and clients have different perspectives, you know staff members have different perspectives. So just trying to create that space and, and foster that um, that dialogue and. You know, understand people's concerns, and uh, you know, ultimately just trying to move forward as a team, knowing that at least you know um, people's opinions were were heard and, and respected. 
And the, the other thing just related to that, I think, is just remembering to um, to also talk about, you know, uh, you know, client successes and, and client strengths. Um, I think often, you know, some conversations can kind of turn into, you know, what are the challenges associated with working with a certain client? And I think it's always helpful um, for kind of staff at different times to take on different roles, right? When when one staff member is kind of focusing a little bit more and seems, you know, it seems to have been working with a client for a long time and is sort of just starting to see, oh, I see these repeated patterns in the client and, you know, all of the kind of challenges, it, it kind of helps like for staff, other another staff member to come in and say, hey, but yeah, remember, you know, this is a big milestone for this person, you know, they've achieved this or, uh, you know, they never would have done this in the past just to kind of reemphasize and an alternative um, pr perspective and remind people of the strengths I think is helpful as well. Um, balancing between protecting the client and community from risk that presents when clients make choices that create risk. You know, that is fundamentally the, the question, yes. Um, how do you balance protecting the client and community from risk um, when clients make choices that, that create risk? Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't have like a great, you know, readily available answer for, for that. Um, and, you know, every agency will kind of be different in, in the amount of risk that they can accept. Um, you know, but but often if if you if you are providing services to clients, if you are seeing clients and and supporting them, you know, to some degree that already minimizes the risk. Yes, things might go wrong, um, and you know, unfortunately, that is just you know a, a, an unfortunate fact of anyone trying to move forward in their lives. You know, every step forward can can involve some form of step back. You know, either to themselves or to a different community member. Um, you know, luckily, it's it's actually that you know more often uh, the risk that you know or the consequence that ends up happening is is you know not so detrimental to you know especially the the community. But you know, nevertheless, the, certainly those instances happen, and it's you know I think it's about figuring figuring out what are the maximum ways. You know, how can you sort of wrap the client around in, in these services to to buffer um, to buffer that risk? But at the same time, you know, I think there, there's always this implicit acknowledgement that you know. Uh, at the same time, there's really there's really no way to entirely 100% right uh, protect everybody all you know all, all the time. Um, unfortunately, it's just not not realistic, and nobody would ever grow that that way either. So you know, it's an ongoing um, it's an ongoing dialogue to have as a team as well. I think you know, just raising the question, I think, is is, is good to raise on a, on a program and team level. Yeah, and uh, so the, the last comment was, right, that client, client self-determination and supporting that can be challenging because most of the time their perceived needs don't correlate with what mandates feel the client's needs should be. Um, right, and, and absolutely. And so, you know, having that constant awareness and figuring out, okay, you know, what are the ways in which, you know, the teams can, you know, operate in, in gray areas sometimes, right, or you know, develop those creative strategies for pushback um, against mandates, uh, you know, those those tiny little moments in, 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 you know, in every service and every day, you know, how can you actually bring the client, you know, back in and kind of push the system back, right? I think um, is, yeah, it, it, it is very key. And it, it is very hard when, when mandates, is, you know, especially are more focused on, you know, just kind of a, a little more on, you know, psychiatric treatment and, you know, psychotherapeutic interventions in, in, in a certain way uh, versus kind of, you know, a much broader spectrum of, of people's, you know, needs. 
Yeah, um, so one question is about um, working with a, a county agency that has specific requirements directed from uh, from the courts, basically. And so obviously that can be very, very challenging um, when when you know when when clients do have, uh, if I'm understanding the question correctly, when clients sort of you know do have uh, court mandated requirements, um, and you know certainly, um, and then you know there's this challenge of right, including family voice and choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know I, I think that uh, trying to kind of actually you know if possible at all get to know that court system. And you know the people that are actually a part of it. Um, we we have actually looked at at programs that um, were mandating people to treatment. So they were mandating the court was mandating people to treatment, um, and, and the person had to report back to court frequently. But at the same time, they were entering a program that was harm reduction and based on client choice. And it was like, well, how how the heck do you reconcile that? Um, and so you know. The program sort of got to know the mandates very well, got to know, you know, in the court system very well, um, and kind of learned what, you know, what the flexibility within, the, you know, the rules was. It was sort of like there's rules and requirements um, to, to sort of keep on with the theme with capital R's and then lowercase r's, and they sort of figure out what are some of the, you know, again, the gray areas that they could operate in, what are some of the flexibilities that they, they could introduce, you know, and how can they, you know, how can they actually show um, you know, some like show some successes that clients have um, have actually had, and the ways in which clients are actually thriving and doing well. So that even though certain requirements are not being met, you know, what, you know, really showing the other ways in which clients are having success and and achievements, I, I think is really, uh, really, really important. Again, just you know, reminding folks that it, it's not all about okay, yes. This person, you know, may have had a relapse, but you know, look at the four months that they were doing extremely well for the first time, right? Uh, you know, trying to have those conversations with other agencies and you know, with court systems uh, is you know key as as much as possible. Um, so, okay. So on, on a supervision level, what strategies uh, have you found to help support others with client choice? Uh, right, uh, times when purchases worked out worked better than right. It worked sometimes right. It works better out better if you let clients sort of have some risk than if choice was not given. What are the strategies which have worked for for um, for others? Um, yeah, no, great question. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of you know I, I think that, you know one thing that that we, uh, we often see programs do is purposefully build in time. Uh, for a success stories or something strengths-based on agendas, whether in supervision or in team meetings. So that there, you know, it's like literally there, what's the success story of, of the day? Um, and, you know, sometimes that can also apply actually on, on a staff level too. It can, it can be important um, in, you know, for supervisors as well to remember like, okay, you know, Maybe there's lots of things that are problematic and for some reason, you know, on a staff level today, but, you know, again, in, in sort of supervision, also fostering that idea of, you know, what's the success for, for the staff as, as well. And I think, you know, supervisors all, you know, I think 
you know, just like clients need to feel supported and, and protected in certain ways, I think staff need to feel supported and, and protected, right? And so from a supervisor perspective, whatever, you know, whatever you can do to kind of make staff feel that, hey, you know, I'm here, I've got your back, I understand what you're doing, that then, you know, kind of uh, makes uh, staff sometimes feel a little bit easier about allowing, you know, clients to, to take, take the wheel, right, or to take a risk, because you're like, you know, I understand why you're doing this, you know, as a team, we agree this is the right thing to do, and, you know, I, I, I'm here for you. Thank you for, for all the, the questions and comments. I, I, I greatly appreciate. Um, I wish that this, this was more of a, a conversation type of, of presentation, but uh, I appreciate you guys working within the, the system constraints of, of the format. Thank you all very much.